Welcome to the Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 1 this morning on our second sermon from our series Origins. If you missed last week, it might help to go back and catch the sermon online just to build you some context of where we are. Um, But essentially, we're reading the creation narrative from Genesis, and we're not asking of the creation narrative, how old is the earth? Um, Is the Big Bang Theory, can it work with the creation? We're not asking any of those questions. We're primarily asking of Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. Um, what do you want us to know about life and what how should we view the world and how should we view um, problems and suffering and pain and and hope and joy and salvation? How do we view those things? And I think that's really the intention of Genesis chapter one through three. All right, Genesis chapter one, let me pray and we'll kind of dive in. Is that okay with you guys? Lord, we love you so much. We thank you this morning for your presence. We thank you for Um, just the fresh filling of the Holy Spirit, God. Yeah, I I just sensed your presence in a tangible way this morning, and we just say, God, there's nothing better. Lord, as we study your scripture, we ask that you would speak. Holy Spirit, um, nobody came this morning to hear what I have to say. We're asking for revelation from your scripture, so I ask that you would anoint my lips, that as the word goes forth, it would penetrate hearts, And Lord, we're asking just for a fresh movement of your presence and of your spirit in our midst. It's our cry, God, that you would use us for your glory. And we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Somebody say amen. Hallelujah. Bless God. Gnosticism was a... Gnosticism was, Gnosticism was never a religion. It's, it, it was never organized. It was more of a philosophy, a movement. And... The, and in the past years, we've dated Gnosticism pre-New Testament, but in recent years, after we've discovered some fresh articles, some fresh scrolls, we've dated Gnosticism after the writing of the New Testament, and, but, but it did begin to kind of flourish. The ideas began to um, arise in the New Testament, um, late in the New Testament years. The Apostle John, um, you know, we believe he died somewhere around the year 80, 90. He lived far longer than the rest of the Apostles. And so when we see the Apostle John writing, we see him interacting with the ideas of Gnosticism. I believe we do. And Gnosticism was the teaching that um, everything material is evil and everything spiritual is good. Um, And so, for instance, um, where Gnosticism struggled with Jesus was that if everything material is evil, then Jesus must not have had physical flesh because God being holy couldn't have touched material. And so they taught one of two things. Gnosticism either taught that Jesus was some sort of ghost that walked around the earth and he was God, but he, would, he didn't really have a body. Or they taught that um, Jesus was a lesser God. He wasn't really God. He was a good man, a good teacher. But they couldn't deal with the fact that the creation narrative teaches that creation is good and that material is not matter, is not the ultimate um, substance of evil. And so John opens his epistle in 1 John, and he says this, that which was from the beginning. And so already he's playing with John 1, the gospel, in the beginning was the word. And he starts his epistle with that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, 
which we looked upon and we touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So John's interacting with this idea. He's saying, no, no, Jesus was not just a spirit man. We heard him. We saw him. We touched him. We felt him with our hands. He was the word of life. And so he's interacting with this idea. And essentially what he's saying is that Jesus put on flesh. God, God's proclamation is not that matter is evil. Jesus taught us how to live a perfectly human and holy life. Jesus, um, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but the, but the goal of, of Gnosticism, for instance, and in Eastern religions still play with this idea, is that through asceticism or through some form um, the word gnosis, where we get the, uh, means knowledge. So like agnostic, if someone says that they're an agnostic, it means they're without knowledge of God. They're saying, I don't know what God is. Gnosticism, gnostic, means with knowledge. And so what the Gnostics taught, which they were teaching in the late New Testament times, is that you could come to a higher knowledge. That you could be, you could receive the secret knowledge, and by the secret knowledge, you would obtain salvation and some kind of spiritual transformation in which you wouldn't you would no longer be a man, but you would kind of be God-like. And that's not what salvation is in Scripture. Salvation is salvation from our sin and salvation towards communion with God. But we, we never believe in anywhere in the salvific process that you become God. You, we are always created, and that's a good thing. God is God, hallelujah. If I was God, we would be in a real mess here, my friend. Um, and so it's a beautiful and good thing within the creation order that we are human. And yet Jesus becomes fully human and teaches us to live a fully human and fully holy and fully sanctified relational life with God. Okay, I'm going somewhere, so give me a second. There was a form of Gnosticism um, called Manichaeism that came around the third century, and it was from a false prophet named Manny. His name was Manny. And he... um, his teaching was, it was syncretism. It was, he just picked a bunch of spiritual leaders, threw them all together and said, I'm the ultimate spiritual leader. Um, and so Manny pulled from Jesus. He pulled from Buddha, some other Eastern religions. Um, but basically what he taught was, was Gnosticism. He taught that, that through asceticism, and by that I mean through fasting, through solitude, through living, think like hermit lifestyle. If you live in a cave, you never eat anything good and you never laugh and you're real quiet, that somehow you'll transcend to a higher place of spiritual being. Um, And so, for instance, um, St. Augustine, for nine years before he converted to Christianity, St. Augustine was uh, a Manichaean, and he was an auditor of Manny's religion. He was never part of the inner group, but he studied for nine years. He studied Manichaeism, um, and he tells us in his confessions that eventually he realized that the teaching was garbage, so to speak. Obviously, Augustine didn't use the word garbage, um, but I'll insert it for him, um, was garbage, and um, he converted to Christianity. Um, I'm saying all that to say this, that um, Thomas Aquinas in the 14th century was a big Italian man. Um, they often called him a dumb ox in school. They assumed that he, that he like, dumb meaning he couldn't speak, but many assumed that he was intellectually dumb. Um, but he was big, very big. His, his, these are not my words. These are the words of his biographers. They would often call him a big, fat Italian man, big man. Um, what we learned as his life played out is that he was not, he, he was silent in the sense that he didn't talk much, but we learned that he was one of the 
um, smartest men that ever walked the earth. He just didn't like to talk. Um, he actually was talking. He was always talking with himself. Um, and I get that. My mom's that way. My mom will, if you start talking to my mom, she'll say, I'm, I'm in a conversation right now with myself, and you're interrupting me. Um, and I get that, man. That's the introvert life. I get it. Um, so Aquinas wasn't one for, like, social gatherings. Uh, he would get invited all the time, and he would just kind of quietly decline. Uh, but one day, um, King Louis the Ninth invite of France, you know, invites who uh, King Louis the Ninth became um, Saint Louis. He gets nominated for sainthood himself. But he was a spiritual man, and he invited Thomas Aquinas to his uh, to a banquet. And Aquinas tried to refuse, but the uppers of the Benedictine order told Aquinas that he had to go. And so he goes to this uh, banquet with King Louis, French banquet, right? Like everyone's dressed decked out, and he shows up in his big black robe. He's a monk, okay? His big black robe. Um, everyone's loud, laughing. He's quiet. He sits at a table awkwardly by himself. He sticks out like a sore thumb, in, just in the fact of his mere size. Secondly, in the fact that he doesn't talk. And the, um, the crowd um, kind of, you know how when you're in a crowd, the conversation goes up and down. You hear people talking. Um, and, and you hear the crowd, this is, this is from his biography, G.K. Chesterton's biography. You hear the crowd kind of simmer, and you can hear King Louis talking. And King Louis said, um, he said, vanity should be avoided. But every man should dress well in the manner of his rank that his wife uh, may the more easily love him. And so what Louis was saying was like, um, don't be proud, but don't dress like a slob. Like, make it easy for your wife to like you. Like, that's helpful. Um, and so in this moment, Thomas Aquinas hasn't said anything all night, but the, the biography said that, that Thomas Aquinas slammed his big fat fist on the table and shook, the, shook all the food, and everyone in the crowd stopped and looked at him. And he said, um, and all he said was, now that'll tell the manichees. And everyone just completely in shock, had no idea what he was talking about, like no idea what, what's going on. And uh, King Louis turned to his, um, his secretaries and he said, write that down. He essentially said, I'm not quite sure what he meant by that, but I'm sure it was a good argument. And so King Louis said, I'll come back to that thought later. Um, but what, what, what Aquinas was saying and what King Louis was saying is that um, creation is good. And what, what King Louis was saying was, um, it doesn't make you any holier to dress in a robe and dress sloppy and not take care of your physical body. That doesn't make you holy. King Louis is saying, like, um, don't be vain, don't be arrogant, but, but dress well, at least so your wife will want to interact with you. Can I get a witness? And when he said that, what Aquinas, the, the biographer said that Aquinas was trying to argue with uh, Manichaeism, the philosophy of Manichaeism for a while, which is interesting because Manichaeism was basically already dead, and that's what introverts do, is argue with things that don't matter anymore in their heads. And so uh, Aquinas all the way was, was talking about uh, Manichaeism in his head, and so when, when uh, King Louis said that, he just slammed and said, that's it. Um, but the point, again, is that creation is good, and that you don't ascend to some form of higher holiness through um, labeling everything material evil. Okay, so let's read the Genesis account. I know I'm yakking, but read the Genesis account, and I'm going to tie all this up for us. And this, this again, this may feel like a philosophical thing, but this, this totally matters in the way that we live our lives. So last week we only read three verses. This week we're going to read like 23. So get ready, okay? Genesis 1, 3 through 25. 
And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness and God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse. He separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas. And God saw, follow the repetition, God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruits, uh, trees bearing fruit, in which in their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seeds according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, accord, each according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and morning the third day. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heaven to separate the day from the night. Let, there be, uh, let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the great light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heaven to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night, to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. God said, let the waters swarm uh, with swarms of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the sea creatures and every living creature that moves uh, with which the waters swarm according to their own kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters and the seas and the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So anytime you're studying Scripture, when you find a repetitive line, you can just assume that it's trying to say something to you. And so what Scripture, what Moses gives us, again, in the Exodus, what, what Scripture is trying to tell us from the creation narrative is that creation, at least in its original intent, is by nature good. Okay, so creation is from God. It's an expression of God's artistry. It's an expression of God's um, intellect. It's an expression of God's power. And in being from God is in itself good. Okay, so listen to me. Satan is not a creator. He is created. He is a created being in the order of God's creation. He was an archangel, essentially what we get from uh, biblical interpretation, a fallen angel. But angels are not creators. Okay? Um, so Gnosticism, for instance, teaches that the world, um, that there is one ultimate God that is perfectly light. But that God didn't create the earth. Who created the earth was a dark God. And so there's the earth, the matter, everything is dark. And so Manichaeism would teach, um, and Manichaeism was a ri rivaled Christianity for a few hundred years, would teach that God created Adam, and Adam was perfectly light, but Satan the serpent ate Adam, and when he ate Adam, he then puked up the earth, and he puked up um, Eve, and that Eve didn't tempt Adam with the apple, but tempted her with, tempted Adam with intercourse, and they birthed this mixture of light and darkness, okay? Not what Scripture teaches. 
matters, not evil. Okay? This docetism, or to, when, when someone thinks, and we call them docetic in thought, docetism is when someone has a harsh view of life. And so they start to think things like, um, you can become more spiritual by not laughing. Or you can become more spiritual by always sitting in silence. Or docetism has a, a, a lot of times has a hard emphasis on the flesh. Like my, the Greek word for flesh in the New Testament um, is soxa. And it does mean, it can mean body. It can mean body. But in Paul's content, when he talks about the flesh, it always means bodily desires outside of God's intended purpose. So, for instance, um, sexual intercourse within the context of marriage is scripturally good. But when your bodily desire steps outside of the biblical um, prescription, then that, that becomes soxa, that, that, or what Paul calls soxa in the New Testament. Then that becomes flesh, fleshy desires. Um, and so your, your desires of the flesh can be a million things. It can be sexual. It can be for alcohol. It can be a desire of the flesh can be arrogance and wanting to build yourself up with finances or affluence. Um, desires of the flesh can be a million different things. But don't confuse that idea with your body, okay? Don't confuse that idea of flesh to mean that everything physical is, is evil and that, that you can become more holy by punishing your body. Okay, you following what I'm saying? And so when I, I'm 18, 19 years old, I'm in Colombia, South America, pastor just drops me off, probably not a good idea, and um, I'm preaching, teaching, um, whoever will listen, and I noticed um, Catholics on their knees, on their knees, climbing up a mountain to a, um, a statue of Jesus, and they were doing penance, because in, in the thought is that somehow penance you inflict pain on your physical body that you're somehow becoming more holy. But sometimes it's, sometimes it's trying to punish yourself or whatever. But, 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 but hear me, that your, your physical body is not evil. It's not. You let your desires run rogue, and now we're talking evil. But your, your physical matter is not, is not evil, okay? Um, so Genesis declares that creation is good and is from God. It's to be celebrated. Dutch sheets and... Um, in his book, Dream, maybe one of his books, he talks about the idea that in the Hebrew language, um, God's Sabbath actually, it kind of carries with this, this thought of celebrating. So on the Sabbath, you rest, but you also celebrate creation, like you enjoy creation is kind of the idea that God created and then God enjoyed what he created. And that God created you as a being to some extent to enjoy and to celebrate what he created, to to experience God's creation, and that in that interaction of man experiencing God's creation, God is glorified, that, that we acknowledge his supreme power. Again, last week, God is above matter. This week, Satan didn't create matter. God is the only one who can initiate, like, the sunsets that you see in the evening, and when you see that sunset, and you experience it, and you think, holy Toledo, whatever words you want to fill in, I couldn't do that. That's better than anything we could paint with our hands. You're, what, you're, what, you're, what you're doing is you're entering into a form of worship. You guys understand? And so we've been in fights throughout the years, you know. We had a recent fight about can drums be played in the church. And I just want to say, like, Satan didn't create drums, okay? Satan is not the god of percussion, okay? 
God created percussion. Okay, and then and, you, and when you read through the Psalms, they're like bang the loud cymbals and praise God. Like bang them. Okay, we're, we're allowed scripturally. We're allowed to bang them. And so then we have a fight about guitars. Can we play stringed instruments in church? Well, Satan didn't create strings or instruments. There's not one note in the musical sale that came from Satan. Okay, he's a perverter. He's not a creator. Can a guitar be used in a way that's perverse to advance the kingdom of hell? Absolutely. But its original intention was to praise God. The same with percussion, with any kind of music. You, you, you understand that we're, 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 we don't prescribe to this docetic, this, this dualism that says that those things are of Satan. Like, no, Satan can pervert, but those things are creation is from God. And so the psalmist say things like, the earth is the Lord's. And the fullness thereof. The earth belongs, the Lord owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Like it all belongs to God. And used in its right context, it, 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 it moves us towards understanding who he is. So creation is from God and by nature is good. Therefore, salvation cannot be earned through asceticism. Okay? So, so, So when the Eastern religious world tells us that if you would come over and if you would fast and sit on the ground and hum and like not have a good hamburger, that's demonic, yo. Like I need a burger on a Saturday. Good God, I need a burger. And they're telling us that you, you, you come over and through asceticism, somehow you're going to experience salvation. I'm saying like, like, no, no, like creation is from God. Creation is good. You don't earn salvation from inflicting pain on yourselves. Say, with saying that, Fasting has a biblical place, and fasting is good. But the point of fasting is not to inflict pain on yourself necessarily. Okay? And solitude. I'm a person that loves the spiritual discipline of solitude. I play that card hard. I say to my wife, I need some alone time with God. Y'all talk too much. I need some quiet. There's a place for solitude. But the, but the biblical Christian life is not, we're, we're, becoming a hermit is not the way to salvation. And it's just really hard to do evangelism when you live in a cage, okay? Um, all right. Christianity doesn't teach that you leave your created status by inflicting pain on your physical body. We're always going to be created beings celebrating God's creation, and that is good. Christ came and lived fully in the flesh. This is why this doctrine is so important. He lived fully in the flesh. He taught us a sanctified human life. And, and I pulled uh, a few things from, from, from Jesus' words. Matthew 15, 31, uh, 15, 11, sorry. Um, the crowds come to Jesus and they say, why don't your disciples wash their hands? Because everyone, the Jewish tradition says that you should wash your hands before you eat. And Jesus says things like this. Hear and understand. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles a person. It's what comes out of your mouth. So what is Jesus saying? It's not the physical matter that's evil. It's your heart, man. We're the, so, so matter is not the great source of evil that we're wrestling with. The great source of evil that we're wrestling with is somewhere in here. It's demonic, and it's our hearts being perverse. Okay, so Jesus says, let, let them eat what they're going to eat. That's not, that's not evil. Eat. It's good to eat. What's evil is when you sit around and gossip about each other. That's essentially what Jesus is saying. Um, in Matthew 11, this is a very interesting comment. Um, Jesus says to the crowds, he says, John came neither eating or drinking. And they, says, they, they say of John, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, 
And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So what's interesting is that John obviously fulfilled his God-given role as a forerunner. He taught us how to fast for the presence of God and how to pray. John taught us a lot. But, but what they say, so they say John has a demon. And then what they say of Jesus is he's a drunk and a glutton. Why? Because Jesus ate and drank and enjoyed people. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so Jesus, in his life, he taught us to eat with people, to love, like, like communion. He sanctified communion. He would sit down with even broken people who the world wouldn't accept. He would sit down, have a meal with them. We can just infer from the text that Jesus laughed, like told stories, listened to their stories, interacted with them. We know that Jesus loved, at least loved Lazarus and, and Mary and Martha so much that when Lazarus died, he cries, he weeps. He at least has enough of an emotional investment into people that he feels pain when they feel pain. You can't do that if you think that you become holy by avoiding everyone. Don't touch. If you think that being holy means hiding yourself in, in the secret place. I'm suggesting that every day you should get up in the morning, you should have some form of alone time with God, solitude, reading scripture, interceding. But when you step out of that secret place, you should still enter into worship. When you step out of that secret, worship cannot be confined to this singular secret place. And everything out there is evil, so I've got to retreat to the secret place. Worship spills out of the secret place into the world. Okay, I'm just talking for a second. When Jesus says in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't be like the Pharisees who go out on the street they pray these big, long prayers because they want the attention of people. They've already received their reward. But rather what you should do is you should go into your closet, lock the door, pray to God who is in secret, and your God who is in secret will hear you and reward you. The point of that is that you should not be religious and arrogant. Don't walk around with this big religious facade. The point is not that everything outside is evil. You should hide in the secret place. Do you guys, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, get alone with God. It's beautiful. If you don't do it, you need to. Like, have some time every day, just you and God. Um, but that's not the end-all, be-all. Step out of that alone time with God and take your, your kids or your grandkids to the beach and just enjoy the fact that all of your senses are designed to experience it. And so enjoy the fact that when you step out onto the beach, you feel the wind, like, rushing through your face, and you hear the sound of waves, which, like, for some reason, like, releases peace in our life, and you see, what, what you see is this vast ocean, that, and it makes you realize that, like, you are not that big, and that whoever calls this thing is much bigger. Just, you enjoy the fact that all of my senses are designed to experience what God did, and then, and then whisper to your grandkids, do you see how big God is? Whisper to your kids, look at what God did. You are designed with senses to experience good creation. And, and just to get, just to finish this thought, our proclamation to the world, hear me, because this can be a struggle. And, and, and from coming out of my season, working with young, um, spirit-filled believers who want to change the earth, there are times where their proclamation becomes, even in, their, in the preaching and teaching, and I, I probably submitted to this some when I was young, my proclamation to the world became, we don't have power because we don't spend enough time fasting and praying. There's probably truth to that. 
We probably have neglected, neglected prayer and fasting. Probably absolutely true. But what that becomes really quickly is if you want to be anointed, live an ascetic life. Live alone and, and pray all day and cry and fast all the time and never indulge your flesh. And, and that's where you gain anointing. And what we actually begin proclaiming to our churches and to our people is that salvation, in some extent, to ascend, you can ascend the spiritual ladder and you, beca- you can become a greater than normal Christians. You can become a bigger and better Christian through asceticism, through inflicting f- flesh and through only praying and fasting. That becomes, in a very subtle way, okay, I promise you I've seen this a hundred times, in a very subtle way, our pro- proclamation to our congregation, to, to the church, stops being you are saved by the precious blood of Jesus and starts being you don't have life because you're not living an ascetic lifestyle. Okay? And so we need to put prayer and fasting, solitude, all in their proper place. They are tools to commune with God and can contend with God for revival on the earth. Those are beautiful things that we need to use, but they are not means by which you ascend some spiritual ladder and become better than everybody else. And living a life that is super spiritual does not honor God's creative order. And so for me, when I get home from work, I struggled with this. Hear me, I struggled so hard with this. When I was 18, 19, 20, that mindset that if you would be alone with God a lot and read and pray a lot, that you would be super spiritual, just worked for me, man. I'm an introvert. I love it. Yes, I get to tell my my posture becomes I get to sit at home and read all the time and I don't have to be around people and I become super spiritual. That's that's great. for That's great news for me. And and what happened, though, is when I had kids. Right. The kids come and they like they want dad to watch 101 Dalmatians. Okay, but dad's trying to read Smith Wigglesworth. All right. Conflict. In this moment, what becomes more holy for me to love my daughter's? Watch 101 Dalmatians, laugh at the jokes, put them to bed, kiss them, thank God for their beautiful faces, thank God for the fact that they're, they're, I, I very well should be dead from, from depre- deep bouts of depression, but today I live with joy with these beautiful girls. Like there's a, there's a different side of worship there. And so what I'm constantly suggesting to young people is that um, I suggest that when you come home from work, like, again, have set alone time with God. So important. But when you get home from work, one thing I like to do is I say, God, what would be most pleasing to you in this moment? Would it be watching 101 Dalmatians for the 101th time? Because that sounds like hell. Or, or do you need me? Is there, are there things you need me to go lock myself up and pray about tonight? And most of the time, I sense that God says, your alone time with me, it means get your butt out of bed before 9 a.m. and get yourself locked away. Like, like alone time with God for me, usually in this season, means getting myself up and taking sleep for myself, not robbing daddy-daughter time for my girls. You catch that nuance? And so I'm saying all that to say is that, like, Jesus taught us to live a sanctified, holy life. If you have kids, enjoy the junk out of those kids. When they giggle and when they laugh, little kids, you know, they, or grandkids, they're giggling and they're, and they're laughing and they're rolling on the ground. That creation should produce in you a gratitude that causes your heart to spring up with, God is so good. My, my second point, which I'm working into here, 
is that creation testifies of God's glory and it's actually intended to fuel your worship. Um, so let me show you this from Romans chapter one, verses 18 through 20. The wrath of God, we're not talking about the wrath of God, but there it is. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. Okay, this this idea here is that it, it kind of carries with it the idea, uh, some, a lot of teachers say this, um, that you take a, a beach ball, a blown up beach ball, and you put it in the water and you try to hold it down and you're trying to suppress it. But you know that if you turn around to talk to somebody, the thing pops back up. Does that make sense? You're constantly. So what Paul is saying is that in your sin, he's saying, talk, mainly in chapter one, he's talking to the Gentiles. He'll turn to the Jews in chapter two. In your sin, you're constantly trying to suppress the truth of God. You're trying to hold it down. But every time you turn, it pops back up. And this is what he says. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So Paul is saying that when you see the ocean, or you see a sunset, or you see the mountains. That in that, you are perceiving a spiritual truth that you can try to suppress, but if you would be honest with yourself, you are perceiving the fact, number one, that you are not the center of the universe. Number two, that there must be someone not only with much more power than you, but with also with an artistic design thing about him that is much greater than anything we could we could conjure up our best painting can't speak to the beauty of like the Alps okay we can't we can't fake that and so Romans is saying is when you see that you see things about God and that's intended God created the earth in such a way that when you see the Alps or you see the Grand Canyon or you see the ocean that you would stop and allow your breath to be taken intentionally allow it to rob you of breath and as it robs you of breath, you respond, God, you are better than I ever thought. And so creation now is not evil, but is actually fuel for a full worship life. So the psalmist say things like this. Psalm 33, 6 to 9. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. And he puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in all of him. For he just spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. So he's saying that creation testifies of what God is like. It's fuel for your worship. So in Paul's thought to see the greatness of creation is to, in some sense, catch a glimpse of God's artistry, his vastness, and his goodness and so again fasting has its place I'm, I'm, I'm i imagine that there's some time in the future where god's going to call us to a fast i'm thinking this week as i'm driving um, i had to go to a wedding in spartanburg i was thinking i need to do some fasting and ask god for insight about about some things some some things in my life um god will call us to fast but there's also a scriptural principle called feasting. Um, and there were the, all these celebrations in which they feast. 
And, and, and the idea is kind of that when you sit down at lunch and for, we lived in Spartanburg for a couple years and there was a Jake's Wayback Burger and that was like, hey, and I spot, man, like we really like it. I know some people don't like it. I'll cast that demon out of you later, but, but it, the junk is good, okay? And so we sit down at Jake's Wayback Burger last week for lunch and I sat down and I said, God put this Wayback Burger here just for us. Like he knew, he knew what I needed in this season and this is it. And so when I sit down and I eat, I'm, I'm joking, right? Like I'm joking with my daughter, but I'm so serious on the other side. I'm, I'm eating the burger. I'm like, God is wonderful. Like he, he created all of these flavors. And, and for some reason, Jake's Wayback knows how to use them, all right? Like some of these other places, they don't know how to use the flavors. But Jake's, they know. They know how to use the flavors. He created all these flavors. And then he gave me the ability to, to like taste it and to smell. And, and as I'm eating with my girls, I'm saying, God is beautiful, wonderful. Majestic. I might, I might waff in the smell. It's, it's good. It's good today. It's good. But again, catch the nuance in the creation narratives. If you submit yourself to the idea that everything material is evil and that you can ascend to some spiritual greatness by abstaining from any physical pleasure, what kind of life does that produce? That produces some kind of life of like, inflicting pain on yourself while living alone and quiet and 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 really what it produces if I can say so is arrogance like you've seen yourself as somehow higher than the rest of us but when you live like a sanctified holy on earth life that Jesus lived and you sit down and you eat food and you go yes hallelujah you proclaim the goodness of God in those flavors um you you're now living a day-to-day common casual, human life that understands that I am a created being. I am not a God, never intended to be a God. My proclamation is that you can be filled with God. You can have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You can know God's power. But even in that feeling, you don't become God. You just learn to obey him. You learn to ask of him. Even in that Holy Spirit feeling, we're not saying that in that feeling, you, 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 you become higher or better than other people. We're saying that you learn to actually stop with your own arrogant statements and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Or you, in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what we're suggesting is that you can't fix everything, but God has made himself available so that you can learn to use his power and wisdom to fix things. But our proclamation is never that you can become more than created. Our proclamation is you should enjoy the goodness of God in the creative order and live fully created and experience the goodness of his creation and allow that thing that calls in your heart to well up extreme joy, pleasure, worship. And so um, John Piper, for instance, and one of the best Bible teachers of the day, um, um, would say that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And so that when we live a life that, that fully, like not just in the prayer closet, but when I step out, okay, I'm on my way to work, imagine, and I drive over the bridge, and you see maybe the sun coming up, or you see the ocean, and you stop and think, man, that's incredible. God, you're good. And then I go to work, and I sit down with a coworker, and my coworker starts to tell a story. And, and, I'm, and I'm laughing, like deep belly laugh laughing. And, I'm, and I stop and I think, God, you're so good for friendship, for the ability to, like, communicate stories, for humor. Thank you, God, for humor. I don't want to live the Christian life without humor, right? Like, that's lame, okay? That, 
we're, we are officially, I'm about to pronounce this official declaration. You are allowed to laugh in this building, okay? Keep it holy, all right? Don't, don't be perverse and you're joking, but you are allowed to laugh here. It's a part of God's creative order. And so you go to work and you, th- you thank God for friendship, for fellowship. God, you're good. And then you go to lunch and you enjoy good food and you say, thank you, God. Or you eat ramen noodles because you're poor. I get that too. And you still say, thank you, God, for the little. I used to just eat that junk dry and pour the powder on. Thank you, God. I used, to, I used to keep a McDonald's cup in my car, and I'd go back in and refill that thing. That was stealing, so don't do that. Um, but you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm, I know what it's like to be poor. I walk in with my cup, fill it up, and walk right back out. Don't look at me. Don't look at me. <laughs> but you think, like, thank God for rest, and you thank God for friendship. I thank God for the ability to work, right? Like, work is not a curse. Sorry, like, it was before the curse. There is an element that, of work now that's a curse in the sense that, by the sweat of our brow that we stress and anxiety about work. Those things aren't from the Lord. But the, you know when you go home and like you paint a room and you like watch it and you feel fulfilled, like that sense of fulfillment, that's a God-given creative thing. I'm like, I'm like, thank you, Lord, for the ability to be productive. You live a fully human life when you take time to exalt him and to thank him and to foster, listen, we need to learn to foster gratitude. Okay, my last point is in here somewhere. Okay, I I need to take time to talk about this. Creation is good. That is a scriptural principle. But creation is not God. Satan does not create, but he does pervert. And what he attempts to do, and that's what Romans 1 is really about that I quoted you from. What he attempts to do is to get you to lust after pleasure, so much so that you'll begin to pursue pleasure outside of God's created order, and you'll begin to make that thing, that joy, whether it be with alcohol, whether it's with money, whether it's with sex, you begin to make that thing God, and you pursue it. And, and again, this is what Piper calls the root of all sin, is any time you begin to pursue creation over creator. You exalt creation over creator, that's the root of sin. And so I think that a lot of times what we have is marriages that where one member, one spouse ends up in adultery and the entire marriage is, is broken and falls apart. But, but it wasn't necessarily that the spouse wanted the marriage to fall apart or wanted to portray the other spouse. It's that they allowed physical pleasure to become God. And when it becomes God, it begins to lord over you. And you may not want to cheat on your wife. You may not want to look at that pornography, but you've begun to allow that thing to become your master because you've exalted the pleasure above the creator of the pleasure. And the creator is allowed to tell us the means in which that pleasure is, a, is meant to be enjoyed. And so um, I, was, I was scribbling up there. I was thinking about, do, do you know Francis Schaeffer, the, the old apologist philosopher? He was wonderful. He uh, passed down. Um, but Francis Schaeffer used to talk about, um, he kind of, a couple things that he diagnosed about our culture is that we are, we are after affluence, and by affluence he meant, um, like, influence. We all want to climb the ladder and be seen as someone who is powerful, and we all want to kind of be known in our community, whether we're willing to admit it or not. I don't have to even know you to know that there is something in you that struggles with arrogance and wants to be seen and known, um, And he said that we also struggle with personal peace. He called it personal peace. And personal peace, in his definition, was essentially this. I want everyone to leave me alone. 
I want to, maybe in our context, I want to sit on the beach in a big house with, with nice finishes, and I want to eat and sip my wine, and I don't want to be bothered. And that's what he called personal peace. And personal peace, peace in itself is a beautiful thing. Like sitting on the beach in your big house, enjoying a Saturday, wonderful. But when someone from the church calls you and says, so-and-so is sick, things are going south, we need to pray, and you refuse to get up and pray because you're trying to just enjoy your Saturday, personal peace has now become your God. And it's, it has superseded the Creator. Or with finances, this is, guys, I, I, am, I just told you, your boy ate ramen noodles and stole Coke from McDonald's for years, okay? I, I'm not after money. But there is something about tithing which declares to my pocketbook every month. I do mine monthly. I was about to say week, but we you know, do it a, a monthly. De- declares to my pocketbook, um, I don't belong to you. Like I, you're a, money is a tool by which I can bless people. I can buy. We, we bought some new dresses for our girls yesterday, and they were so proud of them. They were like, they want to come out and show me how cute they were. It's a beautiful thing. But money will not become my God. And so tithing every month when I write that check or we, we do online most of the time, I'm saying, to my, I'm saying to money, you will not lord over me. I will not allow you to become my sole pursuit. I will not, I will not place you as God. Because what we do when money becomes God, is, it's when dads become workaholics and they miss their entire kids growing up. Because all they're in pursuit of is more money, more power or, or peace, whichever one money does for you. You, become, you, you allow money to become a, the pursuit. And again, money's not a bad thing, but it's not God. You don't allow it to become God. And so tithing is a way in which we say to our money every month, number one, this money ain't mine, okay? It's a gift from the creator, and so I submit it to him. Number two, tithing says, I believe in the local church, and I believe in our commission to reach this community. Um, for us, man, we, we, we are given to missions. We're going to have some missionaries with us next week who are giving to. I, I, my prayer right now for us, one of my biggest prayers, is that we would give more to missions. I think that we can do more. And I'm not saying that with a condemning tone at all. I'm saying that the world needs Jesus, and I think we can do more. And so with that money, I'm saying this is also a tool by which I'm going to sow so that the world can come to see the beauty of the gospel of Christ and can, can experience what I've experienced of Jesus and all of his wonder snatching me out of the grips of hell and placing my feet upon a solid rock. I believe that God's still doing it today, and I believe it so much that I'm going to sow my money to see it happen. Tithing does that, and tithing reminds yourself every week that I am not going to allow this thing to rule over me. Because it, it wants to, number one, rule over you, and because God is love, and in, in love in its perfect form is sacrificial. And so if money becomes my God, um, we... Uh, we had a couple friends recently who had miscarriages, right? And my wife, you, you start to know my wife. She wants to buy them a gift card to a restaurant, and she wants to send them a nice letter, and she wants to just spend a little money just to say, hey, we love you, and we're praying for you, and we're thinking about you. And when she does that, my mind goes, how much money do we have in the bank account? And I know what we've got, right? Like, I, I know sometimes this is going to hurt. This is, we're going to feel this. We are not eating out this week because we've just sown money to bless someone else. And, and that, my friend, is called love. 
And that is God-like. And you can't operate in that kind of love when money lords over you. You can't operate in sacrificial love when all you're concerned with is personal peace. Being left alone in your corner, no one ever calling you, not being involved in the suffering of this community or the suffering of the world, just wanting peace. When that becomes your God, you will not, you will not fulfill your calling. You can't do gospel and do personal peace, personal affluence. You can't do gospel. Listen to me. This is why this matters. You cannot do gospel when money is your God. You can't do it. You make that thing. When you tithe, you say every month to your pocketbook, you will bow your knee to Jesus. And so again, we celebrate intercourse, marital interaction within the context of marriage. But I do the idea of denial in the New Testament. Um, taking up your cross is a multifaceted idea. But, or the idea of being crucified with Christ in Galatians 2.20, Galatians 8. Mortifying the flesh. That, that's an old doctrine. Mortification that the Puritans loved. Mortification means to cause the flesh to die, to kill it. By the Spirit, you put to death the flesh. What that means is that when I have sexual desires outside of the context of marriage, when my, when my body wants to lust after someone else, by the Spirit, I deny myself. I say, Holy Spirit, help me to put to death that fleshly, carnal desire. And by doing so, I'm saying to physical pleasure, you are not my God. You are a gift from God in the proper context, but you will not lord over me. You will not rob from me my marriage. You won't rob from me my children. Yeah, I'm, I, I will not allow my kids to grow up in a broken home because I couldn't control my lust. Good gifts from God in its context. And so that's what Paul's saying in Romans 1. He's saying that creation testifies of God's goodness, but don't allow creation to Lord. Don't allow creation to become God. And his verbiage is literally, don't allow creation to become creator. Then he says, he uses the idol imagery, that by creating for yourself idols, and this, this includes more than the ancient idea of carving a calf and saying this is God, but, it, but, but idol is anything that you make Lord. So for us, it may be money, it may be sex, it may be alcohol, it may be... Uh, power, wanted to be a person of power. He, he says, never allow that thing to become, to, set, to exalt itself above creator, because the moment you do, you become enslaved to it. The moment you exalt your desires for creation above creator, you will be bound to those things. So in conclusion, what we just learned from Genesis 1 is that matter is not the source of all evil. Um, Satan, source of evil, our own arrogance and rebellion, source of evil. This thing is just a tool. The matter is not the source of evil. Therefore, abstaining from every pleasure is not the means to salvation. The blood of Jesus shed for you on the cross of Calvary is the means of salvation. That blood it's the only thing that can deliver you from your bondage to creation. Deliver you from the chains in which you've now become a slave to in sexual sin or money or whatever. Jesus comes down. He lives a fully human life. 
fully human, okay? He's fully God and fully human. We are not docetic in our thought. We don't believe that Jesus was just God who kind of wore skin, but he didn't experience human thoughts. He didn't experience human desires or fulfillment. No, Jesus was fully human, fully human. He sanctified that experience. He lived a life that enjoyed creation, but did not allow creation to become God. He enjoyed creation, but he never allowed it to step outside of the, uh, the instruction of the creator. And then he took your place on Calvary. He lived perfectly, and he died a substitutionary death. That means that he bore the punishment that you deserved. And on Calvary, he bore that punishment, and he, according to Colossians, overthrew the elemental spirits. He overthrew demonic spirits that have lorded over us, and he has made a way for you to live in him. And salvation for us is not asceticism, right? Salvation is not live alone, fast, never eat good food. That's, that's not salvation. Salvation is living fully in Jesus. Salvation is communion in Jesus, washed by his blood. And when we submit ourselves, when you in faith put yourself inside of Christ and you fully live within the dimension of Christ, you, you're seated in heavenly realms, you, you exist, you live and move and have your being, all of your personhood is bound up inside of Christ, in Christ, you don't have to be lorded over by your physical desires. You can be lorded over by Jesus. And that is a beautiful thing. Jesus lived fully God, fully human. He lived an expression of life that was fully human. Yes, he fasted. Man, 40-day fast. He prayed. He woke up in the morning early to pray. He taught us solitude. But he also ate with people. He feasted. People called him a drunk. People called him a glutton. He sat with people who no one else would sit with. He stopped. How many times did he stop just to talk with someone? Right? And I, I, I hate this super spiritual posture that we've embraced sometimes that says that our spiritual leaders are somehow higher than us and they're beyond us and they should be protected from interaction with people. Like, like Jesus stopped just to talk with people, to love people to bring them to a place of proper alignment. Um, Jesus interacted with people, man. And, and I think that if we'll allow this idea to really soak in, then we can live lives that, yes, embrace fasting, embrace solitude. Man, I'm encouraging, I'm really encouraging you. Put, put at least whatever, start where you want to start. But try to block off 30 minutes to an hour if you can do more, just to be alone with God in the morning, just to allow him to speak, just to read the scripture slowly. And really allow it to soak in your heart. Try to make time for that. But, but at some point, step outside of that prayer closet. Like, take your grandkids to ice cream. And laugh. And enjoy them. And, you know, go to a, go to a movie. Again, go to movies that, that aren't full of perversion. But Satan is not the God of storytelling. Okay? God is the God of storytelling. Satan can pervert it. But whatever. Go. Have your own standards. But go enjoy life. Enjoy food, love people, live holy. Those things are not in conflict. You understand that? Those things are not in conflict. And so many times that's what the super spiritual want us to believe. That we're less than because we want to laugh with our kids. Not in conflict in the least bit. Would you stand for me and I'm going to pray.
prayer team, if you guys want to make your way um, to the front. Lord, we love you so much. And we thank you for salvation that comes only through Jesus. And we acknowledge, God, that we are created beings intended to experience the fullness of your creation. And we thank you for it. Lord, we thank you for the laughs of our kids and grandkids. We thank you for joy. We thank you that this week, God, on Wednesday, we can go upstairs and just have a meal with each other and just tell stories and just enjoy each other, just laugh, and that reflects your goodness. We thank you, Lord, that we don't come to salvation through any work of our flesh. The salvation isn't bought by inflicting physical harm. We acknowledge that salvation comes slowly from the work of Calvary, what Jesus did for us and bought for us. And we celebrate you as creator. We celebrate your creation in its proper place. And we say, Jesus, you're Lord and no other. Jesus, you're Lord and no other. Teach us to look like you. Teach us to live like you. And for heaven's sake, let the gospel permeate this community. Bring a true movement of repentance and a true celebration of what you've done. That's our cry, God. That's our cry. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you're here this morning and you're sick, if you're here this morning and you're unsure of your relationship with Jesus, if you just need prayer, if you just need somebody to listen to you, the prayer team is here to do that for you. Um, Otherwise, you are free to go. Hope you enjoy your Sunday. I don't know if it's a pretty day or not, but enjoy it. We love you guys so much. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to this Sunday's sermon. Be sure to visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources.